good morning, Chapel Street. It's time to have our Bible reading together. Last week we had the Bible reading, James read it to us from his home, but the idea was raised whether we could record the readings with the messages, which means we'll be doing the Bible readings from this end, so that as Sam records everything online, it can, those who listen can have the Bible readings and then hear what the preacher says. So please, if you have your Bibles, we've got two readings today. Firstly, from Genesis chapter 1. So Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which there is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. 
And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Our second reading comes from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 25. Romans 1, verses 16 to 25. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Warren, and thanks, Clint, for leading us today. It's good to see faces on the screen again, and uh, some that haven't seen for a while. Megan, it's so good to see you, looking as smiley as ever. Um, you probably guessed that the theme is creation. Um, what a great theme that is 
surely one of the biggest themes in the Bible. And uh, obviously next week we're going to have Creation Ministries International um, through the online mechanism bringing some more of the science around creation to us. And so I thought this week it might be good to try and bring the biblical voice to that scientific voice. Science argues with science and it's so good to have what I would call proper creation science going on in the midst of evolutionary science. Um, but it's also really good to hear from the word. In fact, it's probably best overall to hear from the word. Evolution uh, is a, or the creation evolution debate is a debate which seems to divide people. It's, uh, to some extent, it can be a ferocious debate. It can be a debate that polarizes people. I want you to know that it's really serious. There is something at stake in this argument between evolution, which I consider to be a lie, and creation that actually undermines the glory of God. And that's serious. It couldn't be more serious. Theistic evolution, the idea that God created and somehow allowed evolution to take place, is, from my perspective, a pernicious lie. It is extremely dangerous. And yet it's there in the church. And so we have to get this right. Yeah, theistic evolution, I think, is an issue that threatens true understanding of the cross. In fact, I think it threatens true understanding of you and me. We need good science, but we need very good biblical understanding of what the text is actually saying. It's never been more important than it is today to get that right. Now, if there's one thing that we can say about God, we can say he's the creator of all things. John 1 tells us very clearly that nothing has been made that has been made without him. Everything that is has been created by God. To recover these kinds of truths, we need to dig very deep into the text. There should be no shame in doing that. We must get that right. Now, I've got a seven-point sermon. I heard someone preach a 15-point sermon once, but I'm pleased to say that some of these points will be quite quick. Now, but pray for me as we go through it, that I can do it in the next two and a half hours or less. We need to make sure as we deal with the Bible that we deal with the plain sense. And I'm hoping that these seven points will help us to understand that. I've chunked it up into three parts or three pictures, if you will. The first picture is what we might call smaller things about creation. Of course, there are no small things about creation. But smaller things about creation. Part B is bigger things about creation. And part C is the biggest thing about creation. So as we come to understand this, let's just bow our heads and pause for a moment and pray. Father God, you alone are creator. 
of everything. You alone are God. And so, Lord, I pray as we try to understand, we try to dig deep in your word and glean truth from it, you would cause us to have peace, to be still and hear the Creator speak. Lord, would you use your, your servant, your humble servant here now, just to speak plainly to us all, for your glory in Christ. Amen. So let's get going. Um, part A, smaller things about creation. And we'll start with our first point, obviously. The first point is that poetry does not prohibit truth. Poetry does not prohibit truth. There's huge division in the scholastic world about whether or not Genesis chapter 1 in particular is poetry. Some are, are sorely divided about this. There's a school that says without question it's poetry. And there's another school that says it's not, it's literal. What I want to say today is that the truth that poetry conveys can be taken literally. Poetry is a way of speaking about something. You can speak about nonsense, that's some kind of poetry, or you can speak about truth. And truth can be taken literally. Yes, there might be figures, shapes, types, models, metaphors, allegory, and all the rest of it. But the truth of it can be taken literally. And I think this is literal truth that's being articulated in, uh, in Genesis 1. Let me ask you, if you had to write the first book of the Bible, how would you write it? Would you come out with some fantastical equation, some physics and some maths? Because there's physics and maths in the creation, isn't there? Some people have said God's a great mathematician, but how would you write the creation? What kind of words would you use? Well, you'd obviously use words that you want to convey the truth with, but it would be quite hard to do. I happen to not think it's poetry, but some people do. It's an argument that's given to us often by people that believe in theistic evolution, that we need to treat the Bible a little bit more kind of less serious because some parts of it are poetry. Well, the Bible's full of poetry. Every single book of the Bible has poetry in it in one form or another. We've been singing poetry this morning. It's been put to music. We call that a song. That's what poetry is, turned into a song when we sing it. I don't think anyone singing the songs with us this morning would have thought that there was no truth in them. Psalm 42 says, I love this psalm, it says, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come again and appear before God? That's poetry. It's a song. But it's true. It's truth. Listen, the poetry in the Bible 
talks about sin. It talks about grace. It talks about faith. It talks about the cross, prophecy, proverb, wisdom, history, and if you will, here, creation. Poetry, it might be truth. It definitely is. Point number two, the literary genre of Genesis is historical. There's a lot of talk about getting the right genre, the right style of literature, understanding what its literary genre is, is the key to understanding where it's going, like a kind of map. We get the wrong map, we go to the wrong place. Very simply, I want you to know that the book of Genesis articulates itself as history. Yes, there might be poetry in there, but it articulates itself as history. It says things like, and these are the days of Adam. This is the history of Noah, of Abraham, of Isaac, and eventually, of course, of Moses, the man who wrote it. It's filled with genealogies. And incidentally, the New Testament refers to Genesis, particularly creation, 25 times. And every single time it takes it as history. The people that wrote these books believed it was history. They believed that Adam was a real man. So make no mistake, the, the text itself is asking you to read it as history to glean narrative that actually happened by way of truth, the truth that happened by way of narrative. Point number three, doing well, we're getting through them. Point number three is what God says happens. What he says takes place. And you know that God did not command things to kind of grow into perfection. You might use the word evolution. He didn't command things to evolve. He commanded them into existence, wholly, completely, perfectly. And if you look at Genesis 1 again, it's very clear. It says, God said, and it was so. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. That wasn't a partial thing, it was an instantaneous thing. Don't ask me how that's possible. We're talking about the things of God. But he spoke and it came to be. Verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse and it was so. God said, and it was so. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. Let every dry land appear. And it was so. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruits, trees bearing fruit, in which there was their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. There's no picture in here of things growing into the way God wanted them to be. God doesn't need evolution. 
You can look at verse 14, same thing. We can look at verse 24, same thing. God said, and it was so. But no trouble believing that with respect to the law, judgment, and sin. For some reason, we struggle to think that God could or even would create by speaking and it just happening. I don't have a problem with that now. The phrase, and it was so, means literally, that's the way it was. God said, and so that's what happened. That's the way it was. God said it, and it was. God speaks absolute definition, absolute perfection occurs when he speaks. They don't slowly come into being. Point number four, sin and the fall are literal historical events. You've already heard me mention that the Bible, that Genesis itself tells us that it is an historical text. Well, sin and the fall are literal historical events then. They need to be real events that happened in human history. Evolution suggests that we grew out of something that was primordial, that was basic. God spoke and somehow small things came into existence and gradually over time things got better and better through various changes in the chemical structure and the genetic structure of things. And gradually, we got to a point where we are now. The problem with that is that the Bible teaches very clearly that death enters the world because of sin. If things evolved, at what point did sin enter into the world? Sin is fundamentally rebellion against God. So at what point did humankind, in any primordial stage sin and rebel against God because without that there is no death so there's a problem with this theory it's not possible to have all this death occurring prior to the existence of man without sin but we know that man is the one that sinned against God so these two arguments collide at this point and the answer is to just look at what the bible says the rest of genesis 1 2 and 3 particularly 3 explains what happened god made everything perfect and good and absolute in one go he gave a law and adam and eve rebelled against it and sinned and so they were cast out there's a curse placed on creation curse that they lived under because they are now sinful fallen individuals and the result of that sin well, Romans 6 23 tells us that the wages the result the reward of sin is death itself death existed from that point so I don't get this story that somehow between God speaking creation into existence and evolution starting, and death occurring, 
prior to sin entering the cosmos through rebellion, it just doesn't fit. It doesn't work. Romans 5 is probably the most important treatise on this, and there's a whole message, or maybe even weeks of message in this, so I won't spend a lot of time, but Romans 5, verse 12, Paul tells us, this is therefore, and obviously we need to look at the previous section for that, but we don't have time right now. But he says something about literal events around sin and around a literal Adam, a real what we call the federal head that we have related to in sin. He says, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, that's what I've been saying, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there was no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning wasn't like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who was to come, referring to the second Adam, the second real man, Jesus Christ. The point there is that we are sinful beings because we've inherited, as it were, the nature of Adam, who was made perfect and rebelled. And when he rebelled, sin gave rise to death. There's no space, no pun intended there, there's no space or time for evolution. It's not right. So death without sin. And notice as well that Paul, like others in the New Testament, believe that Adam's a real person. It's not a minor character in a poem. He's a human figure with a history, a genealogy, which we can read in Genesis. Point number five, small point, but also ginormous. We are made in his image. We're made in his image. God said, let us make man in our image. The image of God didn't evolve. It's, it's a ridiculous notion that somehow we gradually grew into the image of God. Man was made with the image of God. We are image bearers, if you like, of the character of God. We're moral. It doesn't mean we behave well, but it means we know what good is can mean we behave well. We self-determine actions. We can decide to do things. We're self-conscious. I'm hoping you're conscious at the moment, but we know that we exist. We have a knowledge of the self. We understand things, don't we, like compassion, suffering. We understand pain. We want to know why suffering and pain exist. We understand love. And we're creative. We're creative. It doesn't mean we're all out there painting landscapes, but it does mean we enjoy the beautiful. 
a created thing when it is beautiful. This didn't happen by chance over time. Evolution hasn't got much to say about these kinds of qualities other than they're just ways of surviving. I find the idea of noticing something as lovely as a good sunset, beautiful, ridiculous when you think it's a, it's a mechanism to make sure that I survive. Humankind didn't evolve into image bearers of God. If that was the case, we would say something like, well, apes might be lesser image bearers. Why would it just be us? It's ridiculous. Okay, so that's part A over with. And if you thought those things were big, even though I call them the smaller big things, um, part B is the bigger things about creation, moving to the next level. And this is point six. So we're going well, we're nearly there. Point six is to understand creation, we must ask more than how. We must ask why. The Bible and the argument with evolution and creation, I mean, creation science is so important because it sets some of the records straight. And in time, I'm sure if God is, is willing, it'll set more of it straight. But we also need to ask the question, why did God create? We refer to the globe, the cosmos, the, the entire universe as general revelation. God is using creation to generally reveal something to us. The uh, fourth century Christian, St. Augustine, uh, wrote a number of pieces on, uh, on actually whether or not Genesis is literal. One of the things I remember from reading him is he describes creation from the narrative of the text in Genesis as being created in two folds. One fold where God sort of creates the context, the place, the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, the mountains, the waters, and so on, a place. And in the second fold of creation, it looks like God creates the creature, ultimately to you and I, to live in this place. And Augustine's conclusion from that is that we're meant to be here. There's context that we've been, and it's a small word to, to talk about the globe as a context, but a place to live is here so that we can live here, which implies God wants us to be here, which if you think about it, implies that there is a reason to be here, which implies there really is meaning in this. So general revelation is something that we need to kind of get in touch with in creation. The question is, well, what is it revealing? What is this creation that God spoke into existence actually revealing? And the answer is him. It's revealing him. It's revealing that he is there beyond this. He isn't actually this. This is separate, distinct from him. He created it but it's saying he's there. Creation is saying, he's a God, he's there. And more than that, it's saying, what a God he is. Another word for that is, it's saying he is glorious. 
creation exists for his glory. The Bible's really clear about this. Let me quote some texts for us. Psalm 19.1 just says, the beginning there, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. It's the job of creation to declare the glory of God. Psalm 95, for the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Psalm 104, how many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of all your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. Isaiah 40, the prophet says, lift up your eyes, lift them up, look to the heavens. Who created all these? It's a question he's asking. Lift up your eyes, look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. And lastly, Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what's mankind that you are mindful of him? Human beings, that you care for them. Glory, 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 glory. That's what the creation is saying. God is glorious. Yesterday I went for a walk with Jared. It seems that all my friends want to take me for walks these days. I'm fairly convinced there's a conspiracy theory there somewhere. Nonetheless, we went for a lovely walk. It's an autumnal day. We just noticed the color of the leaves and the trees and the wind blowing. Isn't that amazing? It's beautiful. Creation speaks. Of course, we can be deaf to it. We can ignore it. But it speaks if we listen, if we look properly to a glorious God. I don't know about you, but as a young child, I had the misfortune of having to go on big ships with my father, who was in shipping. I don't know if you've ever been on a storm, a raging storm in the middle of the Atlantic or in the other big ocean that is tossing and turning a massive ship from one end to the other. It is terrifying. And that's another aspect to the way that creation speaks of the glory of God. He's there. You should be concerned. God spoke this into being. It's for his glory. You love animals? Do you love flowers? Do you have a garden? Do you like the garden? That's because you're made in his image. That's because the garden tells us something of his glory. Wow, that's part B done in one go. So I said that these things get bigger and bigger over time here in this, this message. So let's consider the final one, part C, the biggest thing about creation. The biggest thing about creation. 
And this really is the rub. This is the important thing when we consider what evolution, theistic or otherwise, doesn't deliver for us. Because point seven is that creation reveals the creator as a perfect man that is dying for a sinful world. The creation itself is the context, the place, the beautiful place that reveals the creator as a perfect man dying for a sinful world. Think of it this way. And, it, and incidentally, the, the Bible tells us that Jesus, the word, the Christ is the creator. Think of John 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things that were created were created through him. Nothing that's been created has been created without him. Everything was created by the word. Jesus is the word. He's the one that spoke in the beginning and created. Just think of it. That creator came to earth. That creator was born into earth. Jesus wasn't created. He is God. He was born into this context that he created. That's astonishing. Just pause and reflect on that for a second. I was trying to get some analogy in my head around how that might work. There is nothing. You know, I started talking about dolls' houses and jars of clay and all sorts of weird things. It was pointless. There's nothing that can really help us understand the sort of magnanimity, the hugeness of God's grace and saying, I'll go, I'll go to my creation fallen and broken creation as a perfect, sinless man. Specific revelation is what we call this. Specific. We've had general. But God comes into his own creation. Specifically coming in as a man, born under the law, living a sinful life, and going to the cross for Adam's helpless race for Adam's race that sinned and rebelled against God. And that is you. That's us. We should take notice then, shouldn't we, that the creator shows up, so to speak, in his own creation. And why does Jesus do that? He does it for the glory of God. He does it to bring justice correctly. He does it, as we learned the other day, to apply righteousness properly. Literally, if there's no creation, then there's no cross. If there's no creation, there's no expression to us, created beings, of God's glory. There's no people, there's no sin, there's no wood to make a cross out of. This is all knit together in one big picture of glory. And evolution has a real issue with this, doesn't it? The theory. Forget the science for a second. Just think of the theological implications of this. Because if there is no literal fall, if there is no 
man that raged and rebelled against God, causing sin to come into the world and death and the problem of sin to occur, then there is no need for Jesus. There is no need for God to come and save us. So theistic evolution has a massive issue with that. It takes all kinds of ridiculous gymnastics to try and work a theology that makes sense of the cross if God created through evolution. If creation evolved, there is no fall. If creation evolved, there is no sin. And if creation evolved, there is no need of a savior. All the evolutionists can say is, thank you, Jesus, but no thanks, whatever. The evolution directly undermines the glory of God. That's why it's serious. That's why scientists are trying to unravel the truth. I said at the beginning, science argues with science. This is why it's so important. Let me just take us through our last text as we, excuse me, as we move towards a close. Romans 1.16, a text that we all know really, really well. But I want us to see it in a slightly different way now. So reading from verse 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to save everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the gospel, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And we looked at that picture a little bit of righteousness a few weeks ago being revealed in the cross. There's a picture of revelation occurring in an event that occurred in the creation. And then in verse 18, Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed. From heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So now we've got this picture of the gospel, righteousness, wrath, God's indignation is just indignation against sin. Now if I was writing Romans or you were writing Romans and you got to that part, I wonder what you would put next. I wonder where you would go. Well, the fascinating thing here is that Paul goes to creation. Let's read it together, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his, God's, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived, listen, ever since the creation of the world. I'll just pause there for a second. Paul is saying there is a gospel, there is righteousness, there's salvation, there is wrath. Let's talk about creation. Let's talk about creation in the midst of that. What he's saying is that the world, the existence of the world, the cosmos, the entire universe, display something. This general revelation tells us something, and it's quite straightforward. It's very obvious what it tells us. His invisible attributes, he says, namely, his eternal power 
and his divine nature. If I look at the world, I need to be able to see there is a God. He's divine. It's real. It's not a joke. He's eternal and he's all powerful. What is Paul saying? Fear God. That's what he's saying. Be afraid. There's a look at the world. There's a God. This is what the world is echoing us at us all the time. And at the end of that verse, he says, it's been understand, it's been understood ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. I guess Psalm 14 begins with the phrase, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Paul's saying it again here in a different way. And then what comes next? Sin. Sin. The picture of the creation in this text is bookended with the gospel, with righteousness, with wrath, and then man. Man's sin. God hands them over and so on. Verse 23, mankind has, has become a fool, claimed to be wise, become a fool, and exchanged the glory, here it is, of the immortal God. What for? What did you exchange the glory for? Well, for me, for me, for images of me, for images of animals, creeping things. Therefore, God gave them over. The gospel sits right in the middle of creation. It is the biggest thing about creation. Jesus is the creator. What a concept. So let me recap very quickly. Poetry, point number one, poetry does not prohibit truth. The literary genre of Genesis is historical. What God says happens. Sin and the fall are literal historical events. They need to be. We are made in his image. To understand creation properly, we need to ask the question, why did you create? And lastly, creation reveals the creator as the perfect man that we need. So in closing then, I've just got my usual two questions for you. Number one, if you know the Creator today, if you know this God, if you relate to this God through Christ, then let me just ask you, who are you worshipping today? Dave spoke about um, the unleavened bread, the need to uh, be unleavened, the need to be holy last week. How was your week? Sin curses mine, I dare say. Are you repenting? Are you confessing? Are you coming to Christ and asking for help? How's your worship? Don't worship the creation. It's pointless. Worship the creator that made the creation. Psalm 95, 6 says, come. Let's, we sang this actually in the first hymn. Let's worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. The second question, if you don't know the creator, then you can. You can. You can see more than the general revelation through Christ. He made you. Think about that. He determined what color eyes you'd have, what family you'd be born into, what language you'd speak based on your culture and your 
the family, the country. Come to Christ. See his glory on the cross. His glory in the cosmos. His glory in the sun. Trust him. Turn. Confess to him your helpless state. And be born again. You have come a new creation. Behold the man upon a cross. My sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. That's a poetry that promises a powerful pardon. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, creator of the universe, creator of us, we just give you thanks that you created us, you created this world. Father, we've rebelled and sinned against you, and yet your glory came through Jesus again in this, in this world. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that, to savor that, to enjoy that, to enjoy Christ in a new way today. Lord, that we would trust your word, that we would believe in you. And Lord, this week, I pray that we would walk and worship you as our creator, the creator. I pray these things in Christ. Amen.